be things that people are then looking for and and it can be you know um very confusing to say the least so hopefully this will help put some perspective to it as we get into this over the next uh, then three weeks that will actually cover the context of, of, of Daniel's life and, and what made him be able to thrive, you know, in you know, Babylon. You know, I'll give you the three words, you know, in the sense of our, the study, where it'll head from here. You know, the, the, if we look at the characteristics of Daniel's life, and it's the thing that encourages me to be able to encourage you uh, as a church, is, you know, that, that Daniel had tremendous hope. And so we're going to look at the word hope there, uh, look at that next week. And then the second aspect or characteristic of his life that we need if we're going to thrive in Babylon is humility. And, and take a look biblically at what is, what is biblical humility. And then maybe one of the most important things, especially that frames the way that we study the Bible, is the third is the word perspective. And so we have hope, humility, and perspective. Those will be the topics over the next three weeks. So uh, I, I'm excited about it. I, I pray that the Lord would create an excitement in your own heart uh, because I think as you look at the world today, you go, man, God, there's so much chaos. You know, how can I thrive, you know, in a world that is that is so gone wrong? And I think, like I said, Daniel's life is a great study for us. And so we'll enjoy doing this. But let's take a moment and pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you'd lead us over these next few weeks as we just kind of dove into, um, Lord, what's going on in the world today? And how can we uh, Lord, as Christians uh, live in a world that just seems, you know, that's headed in the wrong direction. You know, how do we maintain being a light in a dark place? How do we be salt in a world that's lost its flavor? And so, Lord, we, we need hope. Uh, Lord, we need humility and we need perspective. And Lord, thank you that you'll give that to us uh, over the next few weeks. And we just pray that you'd bless this time today in your word. Just help massage it deep within our heart. Help us to leave or the greater understanding of who you are and what you desire, not only to do in the world, but what you desire to do in me and in us today. And we thank you for that as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read this to you. And this is, like I said, this is my John MacArthur-ism lengthy introduction into the concept of Babylon, okay? What was Babylon in the Bible? Question. Babylon in the Bible was an important city-state on the banks of the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia, which is the southern part of modern Iraq. It played a great role in the ancient Near East and developed into a prosperous center of religion and trade. That's about 1895 to 539 BC. And the name stems from the narrative that we find and read in Genesis chapters 11 1 through 11, which concerns, you recall, the, the construction of the Tower of Babel or Babel. And it says, and it may have been a fortress, but more likely was a temple to the god Marduk. And we'll take a look at that momentarily. In Genesis 10.10, 10, we read that Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, was the first mighty man of the Bible. And the Bible says that Babel was one of the towns that encompassed the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom there in the land of Shinar. So this is important, to, like I said, to set the framework for this concept of Babylon. The word Babel means confusion, and it's confusion by mixing because it was God who confused the languages of men because the inhabitants had said there in Genesis 11:4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So 
we can say that Babel was the foundation of Babylon. So Babylon in the Bible's history includes the Assyrian domination when Nineveh was its capital city. We read that in Jonah chapter one, when with Babylon's location about 250 miles away. Nebuchadnezzar uh, also obviously factors into Babylon's history as the Assyrian king who was in power during the time of Daniel when uh, his coverts, uh, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah were deported there. We read that in Daniel chapter one, verses one through seven. And then think about this, you know, Ezekiel also prophesied from there in Ezekiel 1.1. He spoke of the detestable things that would take place in the temple. We read that in Ezekiel chapter eight, verses five and six. Uh, we can also learn that the Assyrians in the book of Jonah, uh, they broke away from the Babylonian rule and they later reigned over uh, Babylon uh, just for a few centuries there for around uh, 1000 BC. Uh, Babylonian in the Bible is first mentioned by name, though, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, when the king of Assyria displaced the people of Israel uh, with those uh, of Babylon, uh, amongst others. Uh, there was a period when Israel and Judah obviously were divided and the evil kings reigned over Israel and obviously the unfaithful people. Uh, and they even caused Judah, obviously, to follow in their sinful ways. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. It says, rejected were God, it says, all the descendants of Israel, and he gave them into the hand of the plunders until he cast them out of his sight. The people of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam as he did. So Israel was exiled from their land to Assyria. So Assyria, Babylon was their capital, was the instrument that God himself used to discipline his children. Uh, Babylon uh, became the empire that obviously that wrecked Jerusalem, scorched the temple, and then carried the people away into exile. So for all its renown in the ancient world, the Babylonian empire, in its second brief uh, iteration, it survived less than a century. You think about that and disappeared from sight when the Medo-Persians under Cyrus the Great defeated the kingdom in 539 BC. Isaiah 47 reminds us that there's no nation that is so set against God that will escape his judgment. Okay? The book of Daniel gives us some insight into the nations that emerged in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had this really disturbing dream, most of you know the story, where Daniel interpreted, giving all the glory to God uh, for the interpretation. And in it, he saw the king and uh, he saw a bright image with a head of fine gold, chest and arms of silver. The middle and thighs were of bronze, iron legs, and feet mixed with iron and clay. And then a stone cut by no human hands struck the image on its feet and broke them into pieces, followed by the whole image becoming as chaff and blown by the wind. The stone became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. We read that in Daniel chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. So with great deference, Daniel then gave the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, 606 to 561 BC. That was the kingdom of Babylon. After him came an inferior kingdom from 538 to 539 BC. That was Cyrus, the Medo-Persia. And then a third kingdom of bronze, 330 BC, Alexander the Great, the Greek empire. And then the fourth kingdom was to be as strong as iron, 146 BC the Caesars of the Rome iron legs, and then the iron mixed with clay kingdom, 
would not stand for they do not mix. And those would be the 10 provinces of Rome. The mountain is as of the Lord, and he will set up a kingdom that will eclipse all others and which will never end. It will stand forever. And Daniel ends his interpretation by telling the king the interpretation is as sure and certain because it has been ordained by God. Daniel chapter 2, verses 38 through 45. So I encourage you to read through that. It gives you a little bit of uh, you know, introduction there. But why was Babylon so evil? And it's important that we understand this as we, as we look at this in the days ahead. Because the evil that Babylon in the Bible emanated from its objects of worship and actions of its rulers and subjects, the people were erected, who erected the Tower of Babel, decided to make a name for themselves that was completely in opposition to God. And they proceeded, you could say, with outright disdain for God's rule. That in and of itself was enough to make them evil because they clearly defied the Lord. But Babylon's God was, again, as I mentioned earlier, was Marduk and one that they considered to be the supreme deity over all others. So there just wasn't any room for any other God. So as the rulers, their judges exacted punishments. So we want to think about, again, don't lose sight of this. You know, there's a lot of information here. But you think about the term Babylon, and you think about the type of ruler and the spirit behind it, and you look at the parallels and things that are happening in today's world and our own government and the spirit of Babylon. And I think that's something that will stand out in the days ahead as we look at this. So pay attention to this. It says, as the rulers, their judges exacted punishments that make even the most hard-hearted person squirmish. They cut off feet and lips and noses. And I, I think about when I read that, I think about abortion, right? Added to the, the practice of blinding prisoners, of gutting them and tearing out their hearts, as if raising a defiant fist to the Lord God, their king alone decided what would happen to his opponents, often hacking besieged peoples and carrying them about as evidence of his superiority. You can think of even the cross itself you know, living under Roman rule. It says, when we look at the account of Jonah and his seeming lack of concern toward the people of Nineveh, and when you think about that, why? You know, that was the Assyrian capital, right? It says, we need to remember Jonah was a prophet. His immediate predecessors were Elijah and Elisha, and he was a contemporary of Hosea and Amos. He knew that the coming Babylonians, the Assyrian captivity, hence his prediction to flee and to want for their destruction. Makes sense that Babylon carried Israel off in a two-stage deportation, 597 and 587 BC, and Israel's people were subject to their rulers. In the accounts in Daniel, we read one of his three companions ordeal in the fiery furnace. It was heated, what, seven times more than normally was heated. So we see the, the evil perpetrated on humanity there, Daniel 3.20 because they refused to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see under King Darius throwing Daniel into the lion's den there in Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 and 18, it says, because he refused to stop praying to the Lord. It shows us just a few examples of, how, like I said, the, the heinous acts of punishment that were perpetrated by the Assyrian and Babylonian regimes. It says, yet God is not to be mocked. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 58, it says it tells us of sending people into exile if they disobey him, which Israel did. 
And so you think about this, you know, what is Babylon then in the end times? So that gives you a little bit of the Old Testament. What about in the end times? So it says, what happened that caused a short-lived Old Testament city-state to become such a New Testament symbol of evil? It says, the term Babylon has been foisted upon everything from the world system to Rome to a literal city in Iraq, which was being rebuilt by Sodom Hussein, who considered himself at the time to be a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. Obviously, that proved to be wrong. Babylon in the Bible is named six times in the book of Revelation, the hotbed of end times discussion, along with the books of Daniel and Ezekiel. Much of the discussion has ensued regarding the meaning of Babylon as portrayed in Revelation. The context of the book of Revelation seems to suggest Revelation 14, 8, 16, 19, 18, 2 through 10 and 21, and the whore of Babylon, Revelation 17, 5, are symbolic of a spirit of a seductive culture which will fall to God's wrath. Okay, and something to think about as we look ahead here. It says, we know that sin and evil on an individual basis entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned against God, therefore causing their spiritual death. We read that in, obviously, Genesis chapter 3. And then shortly after that, you see it even went further. Their own son Cain killed his brother Abel in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4. Corporate sin, however, was embraced by a group of people. And this is where we think of the concept of Babylon. What makes it different is that it's not just individual. There's a corporate aspect to it. And we're seeing that being played out in real time in our world today. When you think about current events and, and governments and you know groups of people. So it says... Um, and corporate sin, however, was embraced by a group of people in Genesis 11:4, who decided that they should exalt themselves over God by building a tower with its top to the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. It says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In effect, it became a worldly system of evil. God, in how he is portrayed in Babylon and Revelation, will bring an end to the sinful world. So Babylon, then, you could say, is a symbol for the world as ruled by the devil. So Revelation 14, 8, it says, Babylon the great is fallen. It says, she who has made all nations drink the wine of her passion of her sexual immorality. She's only called great for her extensive tentacular reach, like the tentacles of an octopus. In uh, Revelation 17, 5, it says, Babylon is called the mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations, just as Satan is called the father of lives, the evil world system Babylon is controlled by him, is the mother to his evil acts. Because she encompassed such evil, Revelation 18.2 tells us, she will be as the dwelling place for demons, unclean spirits and birds, and every unclean and detestable beast. Revelation 18.21 goes on, it says, reveals her final destiny. It says, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and there will be found no more. So one day she will be gone, never again to tempt or to lie. So here's the question. So why is Babylon so important to know about? It's a great question. God can, and this is important as we understand this today, you know, and how it applies to us, especially living in the world in which we live in today. God can and will use evil people and nations to do his will. Do you believe that? 
Let me say that again. God can and will use evil people and nations to do his will. We think of Pharaoh in Egypt. Babylon is an example to us to learn how not to live, right? Her inhabitants sought a life free from God. Do we see that happening in the world today? A life free from God? A life which defied instead of glorifying him? That's what Babylon was, and we still see that spirit today in our world. That's what Babylon was, a place where people traded worshiping God for self and idol worship. Paul speaks of that. We studied in Romans chapter 1. From its inception, Babylon served as an opponent to God and his people and instead served as a symbol for man's arrogance, especially in the rejection of God. But God has supremacy over all the nations. Man may try to usurp control, and God allows, you know, to a certain degree, those events for his purposes, yet our sovereign God has and will always reign supreme. Amen? I appreciate that. So other reasons, you know, it's important that we know Babylon. First and foremost, to understand Scripture when it's refer referenced in prophecy uh, or in the book of Revelation. Um, we think about to learn about God's sovereignty. It's another reason. Babylon was a superpower of the world, you know, the time of Israel's exile. But it didn't make any difference because in the end, God determines the outcome. That's something for us to hold on to today, right? And again, God raises up nations and destroys them just as easily. We see that in the book of Job, chapter 12, verse 23. Proverbs 21, 1 uh, declares the same truth. So Daniel, while enslaved in Babylon, remember he refused, again, uh, its pleasures in order to remain faithful to God. And that serves as a, a role model for us. It's one of the reasons we want to study that. Uh, that takes, you know, like I said, a, a lot in when you think about the background of Babylon. So in studying Daniel's life in Babylon, you know, uh, we can learn ourselves, you know, by following his example, his lead. And as we do that, I, I really truly believe, you know, we can learn how to thrive in Babylon. And I think, you know, like I said, Babylon today is a spirit. It's not a literal place. Uh, we see it all around us. I think you'll start making the connections more and more. They're kind of aha moments where you go, oh man, that makes total sense. You know, the evil that, that is existing in the world and what is God doing? Why would God allow such things, you know, in our midst? And it gives us, like I said, uh, hope. Uh, it'll teach us how to live and walk in humility. And it definitely puts things into perspective for us. And I think that's so, so important, you know, as we, as we you know, move ahead here. Uh, in the world in which we live. So obviously, you know, I think most of us, how many ever went, you went to school or Sunday school as a kid, you were, you were, you were raised in church. And so you remember the story, obviously of Daniel, uh, you know, as a, a young boy or young girl, and you think about, you know, the things that, that come to mind, um, because they're probably not the, really the stories or the main story that God would have us to, uh, derive from our study. Most of us, when we read the book of Daniel, we saw it as what, as, as kind of an, a story of adventure, right? And, and, there, and there's really a lot of adventure, you know, in that. But for some of us, you know, his name, like I said, brings up the, to mind a, a fiery furnace or the lion's den. I think those are the two, you know, biggest stories I think that people glean from that. Maybe, uh, how many are into prophecy? You really like prophecy. You know, and you look at, remember, maybe the first time you you looked at the book of Daniel and it had prophecy charts and it had arrows going like this. I think I'm talking to Cosper, you know what I'm doing? He's showing me you know, this thing in prophecy of Daniel. I remember when Mike first came to the church from, from Costa Mesa and, 
And I'm looking at this chart. I'm like, man, I'm going to, it's going to take three years to decipher this chart. And, and I was going, I don't, I don't know if I want to get into this. So I, I know that people look at the book of Daniel, you know, the same way. And yet, uh, you know, the, the prophecies really aren't the main point of that as well. They're important, but again, but they're not the main thing, you know, and, and again, it's important that, you know, we take a look at that and we look at, uh, you know, what the Lord would be able to teach us as we, we look at some of these scriptures uh, regarding uh, Daniel's life and really, especially with regard to Babylon here. You know, many read, like I said, the book of Daniel, like I said, it's like it's this adventure story and that God, you know, and, and, and we teach it this way, unfortunately, many times. I've, I've listened to, you know, fun studies, you know, with our kids, but we'll teach that, you know, that God will deliver us from danger and persecution if only, you know, we have enough faith and we do the right things, right? We're taught that, you know, not even fire, you know, can hurt us, you know, and the lions won't eat us, right? Because God is with us. But the truth is, in the story of Daniel, that his friends aren't the examples, they're actually the exceptions. And I think that's one of the things that we miss along here. I think it'll make sense as we go along here. It's why I think it's, it's sometimes it's a huge mistake, mistake to, to turn the story of Daniel into an adventure story because it really obscures the bigger message. And matter of fact, it doesn't just obscure it. Sometimes it sends a false message. You know, that false message being if we do the right thing that, you know, God won't let anything bad happen to us and he'll rescue us from, like I said, the fiery furnace or from the lion's den. And like I said, I don't think that can be further from the truth because we, we read the Bible and what do we find? You know, I can think of some of your stories here. You, you hear testimonies every week in the life of our church and and oftentimes, you know, God's best have suffered tremendously and they've suffered the worst that this world has to offer. You know, we think all the way back to Adam and Eve, you know, the injustices that, you know, from that point on that have happened in this world. It really is true. Bad things happen to good and godly people. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, you know, after kind of reviewing the list of men and women who walk by faith and experience tremendous, you know, success and just incredible victories, you know, in, in, in the world, you know, God kind of switches gears here, doesn't he? And you look there, you know, and we find those that were tortured, they were jeered, they were flogged, they were chained, they were imprisoned. Some were stoned, some were dismembered, they died by sword. Some lived in abject poverty. They were persecuted, they were mistreated, they were forced to live on the run. They found their shelter in caves and holes in the ground. You read that, you know, Hebrews 11, 35 through 39 puts it like this. It says, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They too, they were too good for this world wandering over the deserts and the mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the grounds. And all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. It says these, he said, you know, were men and women of great faith. Yet God, somehow in his sovereign wisdom, he declined to what? To rescue them from their earthly trials and from the persecutions that they suffered. And not because, they, you know, they were they were spiritually inept or they were weak in their faith, you know, that they lacked faith. But as scripture tells us, God had what? He had another plan. God had another plan. 
he chose to be, and this is something you might highlight in your own thoughts and notes, you know, he chose to be with them in their trials rather than delivering them from their trials. And I think that's one of the great pictures that as we look at Daniel's life and we see, you know, the things that infused him, you know, with hope and humility and perspective, um, it was just his understanding of who God is. You know, Jesus himself warned us that his followers would face injustice and persecution just as he did and just as the apostles who followed after him. You know, John will be teaching, you know, in the book of First Peter, First Peter 1, 6 and 7 teaches us that the fiery trials of this life, that they're just part of the normal Christian experience. It's not the exception. It should be part of the normal experience. And don't be surprised when you go through trials. What did Peter write there in verse 6? He says, so be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ Jesus is revealed to the whole world. So again, that doesn't mean that God won't deliver us. I think most of us could say that God has delivered us, amen, different things. Uh, oftentimes, like I said, he does, but more often than not, our full deliverance, you know, Peter tells us here, it won't take place in this world. It's gonna take place when Jesus returns. It'll be in the next world. So when it comes to the book of Daniel, you know, this is an incredible example of how to live and thrive you could say in the most godless of environments. And again, and it's a lesson that I don't think that we want to miss. You know, you might say it's a template, you know, that's relevant for today. And yet, you know, I think most of us would agree that we're living in a world that's gone wrong. I mean, we can look around and we see, you know, moral decay. I mean, happening, I would say it's at lightning speed, right? You can't even keep up with it. Things that were I mean, one time, you know, shamefully hidden you know, and only done in private are now being what? You know, they're being proclaimed and practiced, you know, on the rooftop. And so Daniel offers us, like I said, a model for not just surviving, but thriving in the midst of this godless chaos that takes place all around us. You know, one of the things to me that I find interesting in studying Daniel's life is, you know, Daniel found a way. It's one of the things you look at, he found a way, you know, in a culture that, I mean, if you study this, you, you realize the culture in which he lived is far worse than the culture which we live in today. I think you, you would see that. You would agree. And yet he found a way to do what? To glorify God. And he did it in such a way with such integrity and power, not only to the poor, you know, that were around him, look at his life, but, you know, all the way to kings, you know, that they would look at him and they, they, they couldn't help but acknowledge, you know, the splendor and the glory of God in you know, an entire nation because of his faithfulness. And so, it raises a great, great question for us today. How did he do it? How, how did Daniel, you know, live with such hope and humility and wisdom? How did he maintain, you know, this perspective? And I think that's what you, you, you look at in his life, you know, that again, the wisdom in which, you know, he carried himself well, came from where? It came from the seeking of God. And one of the things that we'll talk about over the next few months is where, you know, dealing with the, these topics in our times of prayer and first things first is that seeking God first above everything and before everything else, even before you would study God's word, you know, that Jesus, when he taught us to pray, our father who art in heaven, 
seeking God in his kingdom, and that his kingdom would come. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And so I would look at these topics here. Like I said, I'm so excited, you know, what the Lord will show us when we think about hope and humility and perspective, how to thrive in Babylon. There's no question God's sovereign hand was upon David. We, we just can't deny that. He was a great man of faith. He lived a, a life, like I said, that was marked by the, these qualities of his life. Again, like I said, a man of great hope and humility and perspective. And you think about that. So as we look at that, suffering, suffering was a part of his life. It really was the foundation, you know, what brought these things about in Daniel's life. You know, sometimes we look at suffering and we go, yeah, it's like, is there any other way? you know, to develop hope, you know, to, to, you know, work humility into our being, to walk in wisdom and to develop a godly perspective. You know, especially when you look at someone like Daniel's life, I mean, in the truest sense, he was innocent, right? Would you agree with this, this thought or this statement that sometimes in life the, the innocent suffer with the guilty? Because that, that's what's taking place here. You know, Daniel and his friends, they got caught up, obviously, in the backlash, you know, it was taking place, you know, Children of Israel being, you know, disciplined for their disobedience to God. They were carried away into exile. And like I said, Daniel has to go with them. And yet, I think we'd be safe to say that did the people get exactly what they deserved? Yeah. And they got what they needed most of all. So you can't look at one without the other. You know, there's God's justice, but there's also God's mercy, right? They got exactly what they deserve, but they also received everything that they needed to do what? to turn their heart back to God. I love that. That mercy triumphs over what? Judgment. You know, we see that mixed together here. But like I said, Daniel and his friends, you know, they got caught in the middle. You know, what God was doing in the heart of the nation of Israel and bringing and turning the heart of the people back to God. So Daniel and his friends, they were hauled off to Babylon, just like the other young nobles, and they were forced to enter into the service of what? A very wicked and egomaniac king named Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, when you study Daniel's life, did Daniel complain? You read anything about Daniel complaining? No. He didn't complain. Why? Because he understood something that we need to understand. And especially when you start to complain. You know, when we start to complain about things in life, you know, that's a clear indication that we are not understanding the sovereignty of God, that God's in control, and that God uses everything, everything. All things do what? All things work together for what? For good. To who? To them that love God. Does he say some of the things? No. All things. All things work together to the good. And Daniel understood that. So he didn't complain. He never whined. He never gave in to despair. He understood this was such an important principle. He knew that God was sovereign and that God was in control, even when the wicked had gained the upper hand. Matter of fact, it's the first thing that he points out. When you look at that, you might turn there in Daniel chapter one, in the, in the spirit of John MacArthur this morning, I finally get to Daniel chapter one, verse one and two. No, but uh, take a look at that there in Daniel chapter one and verses one and two. Daniel says this, 
Think about him understanding the sovereignty of God, that when I say sovereignty is that God is in control of everything that goes on in this, in this world. He says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Okay. And what does it say in verse two? The Lord did what? Gave him victory over King Jehoiakim. Wait a second. God gave, God gave? That's a misprint there. No, it isn't. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted. So we see God permitting him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God, right? Marduk, which he believed was, you know, the supreme God over all other gods, even the God of heaven. But verse 2 tells us that what the Lord gave him victory. So the book of Daniel, you know, obviously begins by emphasizing that Babylon's victory over Jerusalem wasn't this kind of tragic, you know, event, you know, of evil over good. No, it's actually the Lord's will. It was God's doing. From Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel saw what I hope you see is God's hand in everything in your life. Does it mean you're going to understand everything? Oh, no, 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 no. But that you would see and begin to comprehend God's hand is in everything. That's the foundation. You could say that hope, humility, wisdom, and perspective, what they come from. I love that quote that says, when the Lord is behind everything, it changes everything. When the Lord is behind everything, it changes everything. And like I said, d don't get me wrong here. You know, we can choose. We have choice. You know, God, we still have free will. And we can also choose to live within God's will, or we can live outside of his will. And understand this, our choices do matter. Our choices do determine outcomes. And guess what? By the choices that we make, you know, we can't blame God and we can't blame anybody else. We have free will and we exercise that every day of our being. So the question that begs to be asked, I guess, this morning, moving forward here, how big is your God? How big is your God? When you think about God being sovereign or God being in control, you know, Jesus said when he returns to this earth, will he find faith upon the earth? Are we living in that comprehension, that understand that God is in control? And that he's bigger than everything else and he's working in and through everything else? Or is God just, you know, is he not so big? And, and unfortunately for many of us, you know, it's not the size of God, it's the size of our faith really that determines so much of what takes place in our God, in, in our lives. I, I read this quote this past week while I was studying uh, the, the, the term perspectives. And I, I love this. I wanted to share this with you. I, could, I loved it so much I couldn't even wait till the week that we were going to talk about perspectives. I even stopped myself. I go, should I share this today or should I hold this back until the day that we get to perspectives? And because I don't know if I'm going to be alive on the day that, you know, I would think because I don't have that, you know, I go, I just don't want you to miss this. So I want you to understand this with regard to perspective. And I think it'll bless you like it blesses me. Remember when the children of Israel came out to fight against Goliath 
And you remember what took place there? The children of Israel come out, they're standing on this hill, they look across and, and there's this big old giant. And man, and they're looking at this and they're just thinking, and I, lo I love this. It says that the children of Israel, they looked at Goliath and they thought how small they were in comparison to the giant. And yeah, I think you can picture that. And I think we face problems in our own life. And we look at that and we go, this problem is so big. It says, and, and the statement went on to say, but when David came out, David looked at the giant and he thought how small Goliath was in comparison to God. And I love that because I think that puts it into perspective, you know, for us, because we're all going to face giants in our life. We're all going to face Goliath. And you're either going to be captivated by the size of, of the giant that you're facing in your life. And you, oh my gosh, you know, he's so big. Or you come in with faith like David and you go, when <laughs> Goliath is so small in comparison to God. Amen. And, and I hope that that speaks to someone today that you need to hear that. Daniel chose to focus on the size of God and not the size of his problem. And we do well. And I think that's really the foundation of, of where this would move from here in our study, you know, of Daniel is, the, is understanding and comprehending in a fresh way the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the size of God, that when you really comprehend, you know, God, everything else is so small in comparison to him. And that's what makes this, this story so important today. So by studying the life of, of Daniel, like I said, I think we can face our own, you know, modern day Babylon, really in the truest sense. So my question, I guess, moving forward from here is, do you want to thrive in Babylon or are you just trying to survive? And, and you probably have already answered that in your own mind. Some here today and you go, I'm just trying to survive, right? But that's not God's heart for you. God's heart is that in the midst of this chaos, right? In the midst of this Babel, you know, this confusion. Would you say that the world is confused today? Yeah, I mean, so you, you see the comprehension then between Babel, confusion, and you see, you know, and God is not the author of confusion, right? So we have these contrasts, you know, that, that are, are battling, you know, we think of spiritual warfare here. But you might write this down. God is in control of who he is in control. He will always and always has been and always will be. God is in control of who is in control. And man, we need to remind ourselves because we can forget that. Right? You can get so frustrated, you know, things that you see and you, know, you hear in the news and on TV and all this. But if we could just remind ourselves like Daniel today, God is in control of who is in control. He always has been. He always will be. You might be thinking, though, as, as I've just shared that, you know, am I seeing what you're seeing? <laughs> you go, Pastor Mike, are you seeing what we see, you know, in the world today? This world, you know, I think we'd all agree is headed to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what that statement means, but my parents and my grandparents used to say, that's, they're headed to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, I totally understand that. But I, would you agree with this? Probably every previous generation has all believed that their generation was going to hell in a handbasket. And then think about this though. And we look back to a previous generation and we're going, wow, those were considered what? The good old days, right? But for them, it was, it was going to hell in a handbasket, right? Matter of fact, if you could go back and maybe four or five generations and bring somebody back to life and put them in today's 
culture in today's world, what do you think they'd be saying? They, they think they were literally, they're going, this is hell personified, you know I mean? To them, but we look at them, we go, these are the good old days, right? Well, every generation has basically made that same declaration. And again, if they could hear us today, you know, and they heard us say, these are the good old days. I mean, because like I said, they were shocked in their own life, in their own culture. The point is this, it's never been easy to live a godly life. Would you agree with that? It has never been easy to live a godly life. Would you agree with this? Comparatively speaking, you know, you look at the life of Daniel and the time in which we lived compared to now, do you think we have it easier or more difficult? Easier? Raise your hand if you think we have it easier than Daniel did. How many think it's more difficult? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, again, I don't know if there's a right or wrong in that. It's just, I think it's perspective. You know, obviously the Lord, you know, will have to bring out but I think when you look at it this way, you know, in the United States, we don't have much to complain about when you think about comparison to Daniel's life here. I mean, we can still pray at this point, right? They're not going to kill us for praying yet, right? Yeah, yet. That's what I'm saying. I think some of you are already on track with that. You're going, it's coming, probably. We can still own a Bible, right? You can't do that in certain parts of the world. We can use Jesus' name, you know, without fearing of being tossed into jail yet, right? Yeah, yet, okay. Uh, we refuse to bow down to the, the world's idols, right? The gods of this world. What happens to us? We're being canceled, right? There's cancel culture, right? Or we're, we're seeing that take place. But, you know, you might even lose your job. You're probably going to lose some friends, you know, over it. But you're probably not going to end up in a fiery furnace yet. Yet. Okay. Okay. Revelation 18.2, you know, tells us this. Immediately before Jesus returned, a mighty angel will come down from heaven crying out what? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And you think about that. That's kind of strange because historic Babylon, it only existed, you know, when you look at that in scripture, I mean, a very, very short period of time. And it's, and it's never been rebuilt or inhabited again. So why, why the reference, you know, to this kingdom that's already gone? And I think this is really where I wanted to, you know, get to today. And the answer is pretty simple because Babylon is the personification of evil. So even at the end of human history, Babylon will still be present. You could see in the angelic host, uh, and they see that still represented to the angelic host as the worst of the worst. It's nothing will ever reach its depths of depravity. I love what one author said. He said, not Al-Qaeda, not the Mexican drug lords, not the Tower of Babel, not Sodom, not Gomorrah, not even Nazi Germany. So what made Babylon so bad? How did it become the biblical metaphor for all that is wicked and evil? And here's the, then the comparisons that you see. A godless king was one, Nebuchadnezzar. So after conquering Jerusalem, he took a number of the holy items like we read from God's temple, and he brought them back to Babylon in order to put them on display. He placed them in the temple of his demonic god, Marduk, and again, it was his way of what? Publicly mocking the God of Israel, okay? So then later, what did he do? He built a 90-foot statue as a tribute to his personal power and fame, and he demanded that everyone bow down and worship it, and those who refused to worship it were what? 
they were immediately put to death. So you think about this spirit, you think about this king. You know, another time, like I said, following, you know, he having a disturbing dream, he ordered the wise men and enchanters to interpret the dream for him. But in perfect line with his, you know, unreasonableness and the cruelty, what did he do? He refused to tell them, you know, what the dream was. He told them they had to figure it out on their own. And when they couldn't, what did he do? He ordered to have them killed. So fortunately, before they could be killed, obviously God revealed to Daniel both the dream and the interpretation. But, you know, if he had not, Nebuchadnezzar would have had him, you know, Daniel, all of his buddies, they would have been killed as well. And you think about this, not just a godless king, but also a godless religious and educational system. So you think about the comparisons and that spirit of even the things that take place today. Babylon was known for its demonic influences. So think about the, the things that Daniel faced in his life, not just a demonic king, okay? We think we could have it bad with presidents and kings and things in the world. You go, I don't think it's on the same level as Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was known for its demonic influences. The state-sponsored religion was satanic and the core curriculum in the school. So you think about this, the things that we're seeing presented in our schools today are these schools of higher learning included a large dose of astrology and the occult, okay? So there was a commitment to, you know, the demonic influence of their day. A spirituality that was a hostile, you know, obviously a very hostile environment. So to make matters worse for Daniel and his friends, Babylon, you know, obviously was definitely, you know, hostile to spiritual values of, of Daniel and to the nation of Israel. So one of the first things they had to endure was what we see in scripture. There was a name change, right? Their names were changed. Daniel means God is my judge. His Babylonian captors immediately changed his name to what? Belshazzar, which means what? Bell's prince, okay? So you think about this. Bell was a title for their demonic god, Marduk. The Babylonians used it in much the same way that we use the title Lord to speak of Jesus. And so it'd be like having your name changed from Christian to what? To Satan's prince. You think about that. Pretty, pretty powerful, right? You think about the things that Daniel faced. I mean, their names were changed, you know, as well. And so what, what was, the, what were they trying to do? They were, you know, again, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if any person's in Christ, what? They're a new creation, right? Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. You have a new identity in Christ Jesus, right? Well, you can see this in the spirit of Babylon was to do what? Was to reverse that, was to take away their identity in God and to give them a satanic identity by, by name, okay? Also, you think about, you know, as the wise men and the chanters that were in training, Daniel and his friends were supposed to be fed, it says, from the king's table, right? From the king's table. So they would have, you know, these rich, you know, diet uh, that were forbidden by the law of Moses, right? So again, another attack against, you know, the teachings of the Bible in the nation and the life of the children of Israel. So they could do what? They could either break God's dietary laws or they could what? They could starve to death, right? What were, what were they going to do? The pressure was on. What were they going to do? Were they going to be faithful to God? Or were they going to say, hey, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans. So rather than, you know, again, trying to create an insurrection here and getting all of his friends on board, well, what does Daniel do? I mean, calmly, he comes up with a creative solution here, you might say, right? So he kind of talks to the guard and talks him into what? A, a 10-day diet of vegetables and water. So he's going to go vegan on him, right? 
go, hey, I'm going to go vegan. It's not that God's promoting a vegan diet here. This was very specific, right? So God, during this time, he steps in. At the time, the end of these 10 days, Daniel and his friends, they weren't just healthy, right? They actually appeared better nourished than everybody else. So you could say in this instance, the vegan diet worked. Doesn't mean because it worked for Daniel, it's going to work for you though. So again, in context, okay? So what did the guard do? So he let them skip, you know, the king's table for the remainder of their training. That was a victory, right? Would you say that was a victory for, for Daniel? You know, so you go, yes, he got a little victory. So, but there was still this tremendous assault against him. There was no escaping it. So he got to stay kosher, right? With regard to being kosher, you could say that Daniel won. But when it came to his name and the things that he had to study, yeah, I wouldn't say that that was a victory. The king that he had to serve, you could say that he lost. And here's something that most people don't think about. It's definitely not something you were taught in your Sunday school class. I promise you, Daniel and his friends most likely suffered castration. Okay? Being faithful to God cost them their manhood, you could say. They were turned into eunuchs. When it comes to Daniel and his friends, there's no mention of any spouse. There's no mention of any family in the entire book or the rest of Scripture. So in a Jewish context, you could say uh, that silence is what? It's deafening, right? And I, and I truly believe that to be true. Matter of fact, the man who was in charge of Daniel's training, the Bible says he was the chief of the eunuchs, right? So we have something. You go, where did you get that, Pastor Mike? Well, Scripture tells us he was the chief of the eunuchs. That was the person who was in charge of Daniel, his training there. And you think about, like I said, all, the reason I share that with you today and just to kind of set the tone of where we're going to head in the days ahead, I look at, you know, what Daniel went through in his own life and I look at mine, really don't have much to, like I said, complain about. We can say today, man, it's so hard to live for God. And in comparison to Daniel, I mean, I'm like going, man, God, man, I'm humbled by that. But here's a guy that learned to thrive in Babylon. And how did he do it? Like I said, he never lost hope. He stayed humble. He walked in wisdom. And he maintained a perspective, proper perspective, a biblical perspective. And what did God do for him? God promised to do for me and you. And we see that in the fiery furnace there. There was three in the fiery furnace, but it says when they looked in, what did they see? They saw a fourth one. See, what happens you know, in Daniel's life will happen in ours, and we can bank on this today as we think about thriving in, in Babylon. In the midst of your own nightmare, I can promise you this, God will show up. God shows up. God gave Daniel a plan. He gave him a path, and Daniel followed it. God's given you and I a plan, and he's given us a path, and if we'll follow it, no matter what happens to us, he says, we will thrive. He thrived because he lived a life of hope, humility, wisdom, perspective. And you think about that. Most of the time, you know, in most cases, there's two things that happen in life, you know, when a trial comes our way. We either fight or we what? What's the, what's the counter to that? Either fight or you flight, right? It's fight or flight. You know, and again, what does God tell us to do? Well, there's times when he tells us to fight and there's times when he tells us to flight, right? That's one of the, the beauties of scripture. It's not just always one single way, but he prepares us for battle 
before he sends us into battle. That you can be sure of today. God will prepare you before he sends you. And if I can give you three chapters, I just really want to encourage you to read. It'll help you as we move forward in this study, but it'll also help you as we get into the book of Acts. Is study John chapter 14, 15, and 16. John chapter 14 and 15 and 16. Because there Jesus said that he'd give us the Holy Spirit who would not just be with us, but he'd be in us. And that the Holy Spirit would provide for us the motivation, the power, the wisdom, so that our faith, Jesus said, would not fail, right? In times of trials and hardship and suffering. So in the school of life, you could say the pain and the trials and the hardship, they, yeah, they can be excruciating and they are, but they're necessary. That's the one thing that we need to understand. They're necessary. It's just like the, the old saying on the gym wall, no pain, no what? No pain, no gain. Okay. There's no strength without suffering. So you think about, you know, as we look back, hardships and trials in our own lives, that they prepare us for spiritual battle. You could say that trials and hardship and suffering, as we'll see here in the book of Daniel in the, in the days ahead, they're the foundation upon which, you know, hope and humility, wisdom, and perspective rise. I always like what Pastor Greg Laurie has said. He said, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. You know, it's hard to tell something's counterfeit from the real deal unless you put it to the test. You know, but understand this when I think about tests here. Tests are not for God's benefit, okay? Tests are not for God's benefit. Tests are for your benefit. Tests are for my benefit. They're for our sake. If you think about Job in the book that bears his name, you can't help but notice, you know, that the purpose of Job's trials wasn't to see how much he could take, how much it would take to break Job. It was to confirm, right, the depth of the righteousness that God knew Job already had. It brought out what was already in him. Here's the principle of that. Something to think about as we just prepare to close here. Because the Bible tells us in the last days, there's going to be a lot of people who walk away from God. And it's a sad, it's a sad reality. I like what the author of Thriving in, in, in Babylon wrote. He said, those who walk away from God in anger and disillusionment in the midst of their suffering never do so because their test was too hard. They do so because their faith was not genuine. And that might be a hard pill to swallow. But let me say that again. Those who walk away from God in anger and disillusionment in the midst of their suffering never do so because their test was too hard. They do so because their faith was not genuine. Because the testing of our faith is for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to see if our faith is genuine to begin with. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave you on that, you know, when you, that note and have you think, man, you know, I think of the, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. I won't read through it there, but I encourage you to go back and, and read this yourself in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 29 there. You know, historians tell us that, you know, in ancient Rome, the practice of, of planting weeds in an enemy's field became such a problem, they actually had to pass a law against it. And you can kind of imagine this, you know, that a large amount of this darnel seed would be planted 
amongst the wheat there. And by the time that a farmer could recognize it, it was too late. They, they'd grown up and they were both there and it would destroy a field. And so the workers, you know, you remember that parable, they go, well, should we go out and pull out, you know, the weeds? And, and the farmer, the owner of the field said, no, because if you pull out the weeds, you're also going to uproot some of the weed too. He said, but just we'll harvest them together. And then at the harvest, we'll separate what? The wheat from the tear at that point. So it's not my job or your job. Basically what he's saying is God, one day, God will separate the wheat from the tear. The key at this point, and part of it is, that's part of the trial, it's part of the suffering is just allowing them to grow together. And that can be very, very, you know, difficult, but you can also, you know, personalize that. And I love what the book really drew out. And it said this, failure is not final. Okay. So maybe here today and you're going, man, you know, I've walked away, I've, I've fallen, I've messed up. Um, but again, and this isn't to imply, you know, as the author put it, that genuine faith doesn't struggle. There's not one of us that's here today that hasn't struggled in our faith, haven't had lapses in our faith, haven't literally just fallen into sin in our life, that we've fallen flat on our face. Like as the author put it, Abraham lied, Moses had a hot temper, David committed adultery, and Peter denied Jesus. I mean, but they make up, what, a pretty elite group, if you think about that. You know, they're top, you know, at the, the spiritual food chain, as you might say there, they all failed miserably in ways that, you know, would for many call into what, you know, the genuineness of their faith into question there. But there was something that happened in them that as we move forward, I hope happens in all of us. It's the thing that we can look at in, in Daniel's life, you know, as well. In each of their case where there was failure, something happened. And what was it that happened? They repented. They repented, they got back up, and they continued to move forward. That's the difference between the genuine and the counterpoint. You think about the counterfeit, when it fails, it will stay down. That's what proves it. The genuine will fail at times. It will have lapses. But what does it do 100% of the time? It will repent, it will get back up, and it will keep moving forward. And that's where, when you think about what we'll be discussing next week is hope, not hope that I hope that I hope, but a sure expectation, you know, that the Bible teaches us. Genuine faith always responds differently. It refuses to stay down. So if you think back in your own life, if you went, man, I, I know this, I failed miserably here, but what did I do? Did you give up? That's how you're going to know in these end times, these last days, those that are not genuine eventually they will fall and they will, like the chaff, they will be blown away by what the cares of this life, the cares of this world, but the genuine, genuine, they will repent, they will get back up and they will keep going. First John 4, 4 says, but you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. That's why I want you to go back and read. John 14 and 15 and 16 about the Holy Spirit. That's why we want to go in and study the book of Acts, you know, and our relationship to the Spirit of God and the power of God in our life. It doesn't mean that hard times are not going to come. God will prepare us for those things, but it'll be by His Spirit, not by might nor by power, by your Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We have that confidence. You know, I'm excited, you know, what the Lord will reveal to us over these next few weeks as we study this. And so um, pray for me. I'll be praying for you. Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you so much, Lord, for 
an opportunity today to point us in a direction, Lord, that I believe that we're all living in and amongst today. When we think about the spirit of Babylon and the world today, it's a spirit of chaos. It's a spirit of rebellion. It's a spirit that has set itself up against you. It's a, it's a world system that it denies the existence and the power of God. And then, and really, God, as we look at this today and we think about the, the concept of Babylon and the spirit of Babylon, the ultimate end, that Jesus, you said, because, uh, Lord, of who you are and what you've come to do and what you've purposed to do, that the spirit of Babylon will, uh, again, rise up against the, the bride of Christ, the church. It'll rise up against each and every one of us. But as we see, as we read ahead in the book of Revelation, it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon was defeated, Lord, at the cross, at the grave and the resurrection, Lord, of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we hold on to you. That's where our hope is. That's what we'll look at next week. Where is our hope? What kind of hope, Lord, should we have? What kind of hope do we have? And Father, you would propel us forward. And Lord, if we're here today and we've failed miserably in our faith, and God, we've just felt like the enemy has just told us, hey, you're worthless. There's no hope for you. Uh, Lord, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Lord, your, your heart's desire for us is, Lord, that we would repent of our sin, that we would seek your face, that, Lord, we would be cleansed and washed, Lord, for every inequity that, God, you'd set us free to love you, to worship you like Daniel with no fear of understanding, God, you're in control of all circumstances and situations. Yes, there's evil in the world today, but greater is he who's in us than he is in the world. So, Lord, edify your church this week. Lord, cause us to stay close to you. Magnify your name in all the earth. Lord, help us not to look at how big our problems are this week. But Lord, help us to focus on the size of our God. You are so great and so greatly to be praised. Be glorified in our lives this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.